Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to Genesis 1. It should be very easy for you to find, Genesis chapter 1, right at the very beginning. Now, um, for those of you who have an iPhone, let me see a show of hands. How many of you use iPhone in the room? Yeah, I don't know uh, if you heard this, but last week Apple made um, an announcement that there was a big change coming uh, to our phones. Um, we've noticed how much our society is changing. We, we all have noticed the, the pace at which our society is changing. And so uh, Apple's announcement is really um, a great illustration of the change that we're experiencing uh, right now as a society, especially as it relates to gender. And, um, and so this past week it was announced that, that Apple's new iOS uh, update, which would be 15.4, they haven't released it yet, it's coming uh, later this year, but they announced that in that update would be included uh, a new emoji, and it would be the emoji of a pregnant man and a pregnant and a pregnant person. And um, they already have a pregnant woman emoji because that corresponds with reality. Um, but the newest update is going to have this one: this um, this pregnant man and, and pregnant person. So, so this really does illustrate kind of the cultural moment that that we are in right now. Uh, it's really crazy that I would have to stand on the platform uh, of a church and with all seriousness say that there's no such thing as a pregnant man. That's, I mean, that's really where we are today. And uh, it's really interesting. And so uh, this latest trend of the culture is really being pushed in every level of society, whether, whether it's the government and politics, certainly, uh, public schools and women's sports and even in progressive churches and it's and it's ironic to me uh, that some of the same people that are quick to say trust the science are also the same people uh, that are very you know very much pushing this this idea that um, there is such thing as, as a pregnant man and so um, and it's it's just crazy when you think about it too because if you go back 20 years and you were to you were to talk about this uh, talk about a pregnant man uh, if you go back 15 years, I think if you go back five to seven years, really, um, people would laugh at you uh, at, at just the suggestion of this. Um, and yet today in 2022, I, no one's laughing anymore uh, because this is, this is serious business. And, um, and so um, what we've been doing over the past several weeks is we've been uh, in this series called Truth Over Trend. And uh, I've been doing my best not to back away from these uh, challenging topics. Some, sometimes during the week while I'm prepping, I'm like, why in the world am I doing this? But, uh, because it, it's quite challenging. But we are in this series called uh, Truth Over Trend. And uh, we're really looking at these ideas and truths and, or ideas and beliefs and practices of the culture that, that are prevalent today. And we're really just trying to uh, examine them logically and, and then really compare them to the truth of, of God's word. And that's what I want to do today as, as, uh, as we kind of tackle this topic about gender. And so the underlying myth that is behind uh, this pregnant man emoji is this, that gender is a social construct. So that's really the myth that's driving this. And I'll get to the myth underneath that one in just a minute. But, but the idea goes something like this, that gender is, is really... Um, and this is according to those that are driving the transgender revolution, gender is not rooted in biology, they say, that it's really determined by society. 
It's determined by culture. And so as social construct theory goes, it's when, it's when we label a child at birth male or female, and it's that labeling that determines their gender. It, it's that labeling that sets them on a path that conforms with society's notions of male and female that really determines their gender. And that's, that's how it goes. And so, so what is really trendy today um, is this, this approach to parenting that's called gender-neutral parenting. And uh, gender-neutral parenting holds that um, gender, again, is not rooted in biology, um, and therefore the child should not be told what gender uh, it is. The child should be able to choose their own gender. And so the concept goes from, from birth to age four, parents are to really be careful and not label their child and not influence their child in either, in either direction as it relates to their gender. And so about age four, the thought is, is that the child would be able to kind of make their own choice at that point and, um, and then they're off and running. And so Nancy Piercy uh, has written a book called Love Thy Body. And uh, it's, a, it's a very, very good book if you're interested in, in these kind of topics, what's going on in our culture, but it's called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Here's what she says as she kind of describes the uh, social construct theory this way. And this really kind of helped me to understand it, so I thought it would share it with you. She writes this, according to gender theorists, it's impossible to base gender on biological facts because we cannot objectively know those facts and any other facts either. After all, we can make sense of facts only when we interpret them and all interpretations are conditioned by our culture and history. Every definition of what it means to be biologically male and female is a product of cultural forces. And so that's really, that's really kind of what's driving what we're seeing today. It's, it's that uh, belief that has uh, really inculcated um, the academy and, and it's, it's, it's really influencing every level of society. Now, I, I talked about this in week one of our series that, that everything that we're seeing in our society today is really based on the idea that there is no absolute truth um, and, and, and so therefore uh, you can't know the truth. And, and that's really driving everything that we're seeing today. And so um, I shared with you in week one that this statement that there is no absolute truth is really a self-refuting, illogical statement. Like it's, it's, it's self-contradictory. I mean, just think about what they're saying uh, when they say this. Uh, think about it this way. If, if all humans are trapped by what the culture tells them, and they have no access to truth, then how do gender theorists know that their, that their claims are true? You guys following that? Yeah, I mean, how do they make that statement if we can't know the truth and we can't access it? And so it's really, it's really an argument that undercuts itself again and again and again. You see that this is a self refuting statement. I mean, if we really are trapped by what the culture tells us and none of us have access to the truth, then how can gender theorists throw out their version of the truth with such 
confidence. And what I say is they can't. They've cut their legs out from underneath them uh, as, they've, as they've even argued with us on this. Now, I would just submit to you, church, that we can know the truth. And I would submit to you that we can know absolute truth because truth has been revealed to us by a loving God. Romans 1 talks about the fact that we know we know that God is real. We know that God exists just by observing creation. And so God has revealed his glory to us. He's revealed himself to us. He's revealed his truth to us just in the sheer beauty of creation, just in the sheer complexity of creation. And what we find is that, is that the entire universe witnesses to the fact that God is the creator and therefore the source of all truth. I would also submit to you that God has revealed to us truth in the human heart. That we have a conscience and, and, that, and that this conscience informs us of right and wrong with a knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. And so therefore, uh, in every culture, in every time period, in every continent, lying, stealing, cheating, and murder, and cowardice on the battlefield has always been wrong. It doesn't matter what the time period is. And that's because we have a conscience. Everybody has this revelation of God's conscience on them. But the news gets even better because God has not only revealed, to, revealed himself to us in creation and in our conscience, but he's revealed to us specifically his truth in the word of God. And he did it by sending his son, the divine word, Jesus, as the source of truth, as the ultimate truth. And Jesus said it like this, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what he's talking about there is this, that truth is a person and he can be known. And so the question that I have, I brought to this to this this whole subject of gender is what's the truth about gender what does the bible say about gender you know i've done a lot of reading on this topic over the last couple of months i've looked at a lot of scripture the bible says a lot about gender more than we even realize or even give it credit for and i wish i could i wish i had a lot of time to dig those out for us uh today but i'm just going to kind of give us an introduction today and hopefully you know, hopefully this will, this will really uh, equip you as we kind of move forward. But, but I, wanna, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 1 because I think God just makes it very clear from the very beginning um, all about gender. So I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. And so the writer of Genesis says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of God, praise God, stands forever. You may be seated. All right, so what's going on in Genesis chapter 1? Well, you know, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, you know that God is busy creating. He is busy creating the heavens and the earth. So he's creating 
the animals and the oceans and the birds and the fish, and he creates man and woman, which is really the pinnacle, the high point of his creation. And so what we see in this passage very plainly um, is that in the creation of Adam and Eve, we see the genesis of gender. We really see that gender is a part of God's divine design for the, for the sexes, right? Uh, in creation of the sexes. We see that gender is not a cultural construct, but what we see very plainly is, is gender is God's game plan. That gender is deeply embedded into the creation, really since the beginning of time. And it's at this point where we're now in a major conflict with, with what the world says. At this point right now, um, there's a huge conflict between what the word says and what the culture says. And so we have two competing um, mutually exclusive views on this or ideas on this. And idea number one is that there are two genders. That's the first one. Then idea number two is that there are many genders. In fact, when I was, when I was just doing some research on this topic, I, I tried to kind of find some consensus on how many genders there are. I couldn't find that. I, I found, uh, you know, one one article that said there are 12 genders, one, one that said there were 58, one that said there were 54, one that said there were 112. Uh, I, I read that Facebook has infinite gender customization. Infinite. So, so really what you have here are just two ideas that cannot be true at the same time. They both cannot be true. One is true and one is false. That's, that is what uh, the reality is. And so what I want to do is just in, in the short time that I have, just kind of an intro to this, is, is really just ask three questions of both of those ideas. So the idea is that there are two genders or there are many genders. I want to ask these three questions. Where did the idea come from? And, and then secondly, I want to ask, does it correspond with reality? And then third, what are the consequences of that idea? So that's where I want to go today as best I can. So as I do this, you, you just say a prayer for me as we kind of walk through this. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to really just guide us uh, through this process. Because this is right where we are all living uh, today. So two genders. Where does this idea come from? Well, I want to show you Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. I've already showed you Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But let me just show you Matthew 19 because Jesus is talking here. And in Jesus' day, the topic of marriage was kind of controversial. So they asked him a question about marriage, and he, he, didn't, he didn't miss a beat in answering the question. Notice what he said. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is how he answered the question. This is how Jesus answered the question about marriage. And what he's doing here is he's referencing the, crea the creation account. He is validating the creation account. And he asked the question, have you not read? Have you not considered that in the beginning God created them male and female? So what he does is he is, he is asserting a truth here that, that the idea of two genders comes from God himself that God created it in the beginning of time. And so that's what he, that's what he is 
put, putting forward as truth. I will go a step, for, step further and say, not only was gender God's idea and that he created the two genders, but I will submit to you, church, that both genders flow out of the very nature and character of God himself. It's not just he merely created it. This flows out masculinity and femininity flows out of the character and the nature of God. And I want to show you this right from Scripture. Now, let me, let me just do it this way. I want to kind of set it up this way. So stay with me. When you think about gender, how would you define it? As you think about masculinity, how would you define that? Or femininity, how would you, how would you describe that? As soon as you start to try to, de- to define it, it gets kind of awkward. It's kind of hard to, def- to, to define it. I mean, you start, I mean, typically, and this is what I, what I found myself doing, I started going through kind of characteristics of masculinity, you know, and then characteristics of femininity. And then, and then I kind of caught myself because, well, I know, here the, here's the list of masculine characteristics, but I know some girls that kind of have some of these. And then I started thinking through feminine characteristics, and I thought, well, you know, I know some guys that kind of, so, so it's just this, it just starts really getting awkward. There's just really no clear-cut way to define it. In fact, what you'll find is that sociologists, researchers, scientists don't even agree on how to define gender. It's, it's really a challenging, uh, very difficult thing. Now, uh, Maureen Dowd is a journalist. She wrote a column um, in the New York Times, and, and she acknowledges this. And she said this. She was writing a column, and she was arguing that there should be more women in, um, you know, she was arguing that women are underrepresented in the highest offices of our government. And I think, I think she's probably right on that. And so that they're upper, unrepresented. And so she's really af- affirming and asserting we need to have more women in places of leadership in, in the government. And so she starts talking about characteristics that women bring to the table that would, that would really make a huge difference in in the government and in leadership today. And so this is what she says, and I quote, women reach across the aisle, they seek consensus, they verbalize and empathize more, they manage and listen better, women are more pragmatic, they're risk averse, and they're unburdened by testosterone and less bellicose, end of quote. Now I think she's right in all of that. But then notice what she says. The very next sentence in the column says this. Unfortunately, these truisms have not held true with many of the top women I have covered in Washington. So she's acknowledging that there are exceptions even to her list. And I think this illustrates that we can't just lean on characteristics as really a definition because we find exceptions to this. Now, here's my question I come back to. Why is gender so hard to define? And here's here's the answer that I would like to present to you. And it's this. Gender is a fundamental element of what it means to be made in the image of God. And the reason why it's not easy to define is because God is not easy to define. He is infinite and eternal. I'm not saying he's impossible to define. I'm just saying it's a challenge. And so it just makes sense, church, that if we're image bearers of God, engendered image bearers of God, and he's difficult to define, we're just mirroring his difficulty. 
we're just reflecting the fact that he's not easy to define and gender will not be easy to define either. I submit to you today that as image bearers of God, and we've been talking about that every single week, that is the thread that runs through this series of messages. Human life is sacred. Human life reflects the character and nature of God and especially gender does. It's not that one is superior to the other. Both flow out of the nature and the character of God. Paul talks about this in a very interesting passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11. At some point, I'm going to have to preach on it because it's so interesting. But let me just show you uh, a piece of it because the implications of this are huge. Notice what he says. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, she's talking about Eve came out of, you know, Adam. So man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Now, what I want you to notice here is this. He's talking about men and women are from God. Men and women are interdependent on each other because Eve came out of Adam. And and then men subsequently come from Eve and the daughters of Eve right? So there's this, this cycle going on. But then he comes back, and he, where does he land? He lands, well, all things are from God. All things are from God. So basically what he's saying is this, that, that, that we are literally out of God. Gender is just derivative of God himself out of his nature. The, the Greek there is theou. And it it literally means out of God himself. Both men and women, the characteristics of that uh, flow out of the nature and the character of God. Now, practically, the implications of this are just huge. And and, and what it means is this, is is that God contains both masculinity and femininity in himself. And they're good. They're really good. And it flows out of who God is. And so it's not just a mere creation. He's like, oh, well, let's just create gender. No, this is, this is a part of who God is. And so, and it's really just another way of saying that men and women are both uh, image bearers of God. Practically, just in an everyday world, uh, you know, in the trenches kind of world that we live in every day, what that means is God created you just like he wanted you. He gave you gifts, talents, and abilities. He let you be born to the parents you were born to in the time that you were born, in the place that you were born. He was sovereign over all of that and included in that glorious package is your gender and mine. And all of it flows out of the character and nature of God. And it is a beautiful thing. And I think, church, that helps us to figure out who we are. It helps us to identify who we are. That our identity is is not in anything else other than our relationship with God. That's what defines our identity more than anything. And um, and so that implication, man, that will preach all day long. And so um, this is really a part of God's creation. Now, that's the first question. Where did, where did this idea come from of two genders? Now, does the idea of two genders correspond with reality? 
I think that's the next question we need to kind of answer. Does it correspond with reality, what we, what we can see? And I would just say yes, absolutely, uh, because scientifically, we can observe differences between men and women, right? So there are clear biological differences. There are clear chromosomal differences. There are clear skeletal and muscle mass differences. There are differences in reproductive organs, right? There's clear cardiovascular differences, brain chemistry, brain size differences, facial hair, uh, fat storage, hormones, bone density difference. I mean, there's, I mean, I could go on and on and on. We clearly see that there are differences in, in the two genders, that there, are, that there are two genders, and these are scientifically obs- observable. Now, I'll say this. Obviously, there are genetic abnormalities because we live in a fallen, broken world. Uh, and you can study about these different syndromes and conditions. But uh, there was, I was reading about one syndrome called uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome. And this is, this, is a, this is a syndrome where a male, biological male, is really resistant to male hormones. And, uh, and so has, as a result, physical traits of a woman. So that's androgen insensitivity syndrome. Then there's congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is hard to say in front of a large group of people but um but you have this and this is where this is where uh, genitals don't develop normally and and so uh that causes significant issues as you could imagine so there are abnormalities that occur in a fallen broken world and uh that's very consistent with other kind of disabilities and abnormalities that we see and so people that struggle with these should be treated with care and compassion, obviously. And so, so I, I, obviously there, there are exceptions. But the main thing here is we, we do notice big differences. And they're not just biological, they're, they're psychological, they're, they're, they're emotional. In fact, there, there have been a number of gender studies uh, completed in the States and in other countries where uh, men and women have the highest levels of equal opportunity. And it's interesting because men and women in those, in those studies showed the highest discrepancies between the choices that they made when it comes to education and occupation. So they've done studies all over the world of men and women, and they just see huge differences between the genders and, and how, how they choose, for example, uh, their education, and even their occupation. And so, so uh, you know, you see that uh, fewer women enter engineering, science, and technology fields. And then fewer men enter social service fields. And so, uh, so you, you really see that. Uh, men are drawn to things. Women are drawn to people. And uh, you see, now obviously there are exceptions to this, um, but there's also a pattern that you see uh, in this as well. And so obviously, you know, we see these differences. What we know is true turns out to be true that uh, we really are different. The genders are really different and uh, that they really flow out of God and it's a part of his creation. Now, here's, here's the third question on this idea of the two genders. What are the consequences of the idea of two genders? 
Like when you, when you run with that idea that there are just two genders, what's the consequence? Now, I thought of a lot of things, but I'll just share with you the one that I wanted for us to land on. I would say that a result of the two genders or this idea of two genders is just clarity. Clarity. Clarity as it relates to who I am as an individual because I realize that God created me in his image and me personally as a male. And I understand that that is from God and I run with that and I accept that. And, uh, and so that's a good thing. That's a, like all the other ways that God created me. You know, he created me 5'10", right? He, he didn't, sometimes when I was in high school, I wanted to be 6'5", 230, you know, and wanted to play, be a star football player. But that's not how he created me. And so I had to come to a place of just saying, you know, I'm going to accept who God created me to be. Because he's sovereign. And my life is a gift for him. So it brings great clarity when I begin to see this is his idea. And, uh, and my purpose in life is to bring him uh, glory. But it, but it also brings clarity in, you know, in marriage. Brings great clarity in marriage, things like family. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Let me just show this to you. So we, we just read it, but let me, let, me, let me dig into it a little bit more. So they're asking Jesus about marriage. And notice what he says. He answered, have you, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they're no longer two, but one flesh. And so, therefore, what God has joined together, that's marriage, let no man separate. So what Jesus is doing here is he's making it very clear that marriage was designed for one male and one female to come together, to leave their families, to come together and create a new family through the bond through the bond of God joining them in marriage. And that was Jesus' sexual ethic. It's pretty simple. And, and so really, uh, marriage was caused by gender. And, and God, God's will is that male and female come together, join together as one. And there's a really cool feature about this coming together as one. It's a, it's a, spiritual union it's a mental union it's an emotional union it's a sexual union but there's a really cool feature in it notice it in genesis 2 25 the writer of genesis says this and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed now that is profound and so Man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were naked and they were not ashamed. And so what this really points to is that God's design, God's original design for, for men and women is that there would be no trace of insecurity, there would be no trace of fear, no trace of shame, and no trace of confusion around their identity, their sexuality, and their gender. That was God's original design. I think uh, one of the best parts of the creation account is Genesis 1.28. This may be the greatest command that's ever been commanded. Uh, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Um, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's the greatest command in the world. He's, he's basically saying, you know what the translation is? Go and make babies. Have fun. That's, that, that's what it is. And so... It's interesting to me 
as, as God is laying this out, that God doesn't have to give Adam and Eve instructions and in how to carry that out. Like, uh, he knows they're going to figure that out, uh, that, that a man and a woman are created perfectly for that to happen. And, um, and it happens beautifully. And what's the result of it? Life. So when a man and woman come together in the bonds of marriage and under vows and commitment, uh, they reproduce, they multiply, they bring forth life. Who's the life giver? God is. And it brings tremendous glory, tremendous glory to him in that way. So, so that's really the idea of two genders. Now, what about this idea of many genders? Where, where does that idea come from? Now, I've given you a little bit of the history of that, but let me, let me uh, give you an example of this. When we think about this idea of many genders, which is taking over our society right now, there's a doctor by the name of Dr. John Money. He was, he was a doctor and a professor at, uh, professor of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins Medical School and uh, beginning in 1951. And he was one of the first ones to advance this theory that gender is a social construct. Now, it has its roots in Rousseau, the philosopher in the 1700s, but, but uh, Dr. Money is the one who really took it, and, and we're seeing the fruit of his work today uh, because he was the driver of it. He was the one who introduced the term sexual orientation and also gender role. Well, in 1965, he founded the Johns Hopkins uh, Gender Identity Clinic. And it was there that he met a family called the Reimer family. The Reimer family had two twin boys. And so one of their twins, one of the twin boys, experienced a botched circumcision. And so, so what Dr. Money did is he connected with this family because he wanted to test his theories on gender on them. So he convinced the Reimer parents to remove the sexual organs of the child that had the botched circumcision and to raise that child as a female. So the first child was born a male and was raised as a male. His name was Brian. The twin was born as a male and then his sexual organs were removed and was raised as a female. They called him Brenda. And so what he did is he followed up with this family over the years. And he met with Brian and Brenda over the years. And he made observations. And he studied them. And he wrote in medical journals. What came out later is he was sexually abusing both of the kids all through that process. And, and not only that, but he reported in medical journals during those years of meeting with these two kids that his theories on gender were provable, that he could prove them. He had evidence. And uh, he wrote about that. And uh, not only that, but in an effort to convince doctors to prescribe what we now know as gender reassignment surgery, he completely ignored in his writings what happened to the boys or what happened to Brian and Brenda. See, later in Brian's life, as a teenager, he overdosed and died on drugs and then Brenda when Brenda found out what had happened to him at age 14 
he changed his name to David and began transitioning back to a boy. And then later he committed suicide. Now you're not going to hear that in the media today. Um, downstream of all the propaganda and these current ideas on gender is death and destruction. That's where, that's where it leads. And so in the early 70s, there was, there was a man by the name of Dr. Paul McHugh, and he was also at Johns Hopkins uh, during the time that uh, Dr. Money was there, and he was an opponent of Dr. Money. And uh, he wrote extensively and spoke extensively that gender reassignment surgery was a violation of medical ethics, mainly do no harm. And uh, he claimed that in no other psychological problem would you ever prescribe surgery. That's what he said. For example, so if somebody's struggling with anorexia, you're not going to prescribe liposuction for them. Um, you know, if somebody did that, they would be sued for malpractice and abuse because that's what it would be. But that's what's happening today. And um, what is currently going on in an effort, and this is, this is a condition, it's called gender dysphoria. And, and uh, really, gender dysphoria is this. It's uh, defined as someone's sense of, of themselves. It does not really align with their gender. So, so their awareness of themselves, their sense of themselves doesn't really align with their, their biological gender. And so that's called gender dysphoria. And it's classified as a mental disorder. But what's happen, happening today, tragically, is that children as young as eight are being prescribed powerful medications and drugs to block the onset of puberty and it has catastrophic irreversible effects not only on their brain development not only on uh, their their physical development their body development but their emotional development as well and one endocrinologist said this gender dysphoria is not an endocrine issue it's a psychological one and it should be treated with psychological care but that's that's what's being pushed uh, so much in, in our society today. That's, what's, that's the truth behind it. And, uh, and so then I asked the question, our second question of this, that's, that's where the idea of there are many genders originated. Well, does the idea correspond with reality that there are many genders? And I think we know the answer to that. I think we've already answered that. I think we see, we see major differences in two genders. Uh, so the answer is no. And um, I think that's verifiable. I think we know it in our mind and in our heart. And I would just say this. You know, if, if we allow children just to ask questions, and if parents will just lovingly guide them through puberty and adolescence, you know, even as they wrestle with this whole question of who I am, you know, who am I? I think... I think confusion over time diminishes with parents who are just nurturing their kids in a loving way. Parents who are discipling their kids, you know, to know the truth of Scripture, that God created them, that God loves them, that God has a plan for them, that God has redeemed them, that God is with them, that God is the definition of who 
we really are, that we are sons and daughters of God by grace through faith. The problem is, is the transgender movement is fueling the confusion so, so much that it creates a lot of pressure in society and uh, creates pressure for parents, certainly pressure for kids, and, and pressure for physicians in the medical community. And so, now, there are times when you know, as a pastor, I know this, that gender dysphoria doesn't just go away uh, over time. And in those situations, what is needed is just wise and loving counseling and, uh, and just nurturing and, and care specifically in that area. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I would advocate uh, for those that are struggling uh, with this. And I'm, I'm sure... Uh, I'm sure that there's, there is that here. And so, um, now, what are the consequences of this idea that there are many genders? Well, there are a lot of consequences, obviously, but the thing that I would say is confusion is the consequence. When we propagate a myth that there are many genders, confusion abounds. Confusion reigns. We don't have clarity. Um, we have the opposite of clarity, and that is, that is confusion. I mean, just think about, think about the chaos that's, that our society is experiencing right now when it comes to women's rights, women's sports, when we're talking about the privacy and safety of public bathrooms, the safety of women's shelters, um, the safety of locker rooms, the truth of identification, just having an ID card, um, curriculum that's being taught in our schools. There's just all kinds of chaos being unleashed on our society today that's pulling us farther and farther apart. And I think that, I think that, that's a consequence. I, I, I'll share this with you. It's, it's a fact that suicide rates are through the roof for transgender people. Through the roof. Uh, some say as high as 50%. I, I was just reading on a major news website, just an article this week. I wasn't even looking for anything. And uh, there's a major case in Florida of a 12-year-old girl who, who uh, was told by public school officials that she was a boy and that she should transition. And they started referring her to her as a boy. And they even gave her a boy name. And she tried to commit suicide on the school campus. And, and the school officials never told the parents about this, never told them about it. And so this has become a, I mean, a national case. I mean, the Secretary of Education is involved in it. Congress is involved in it now. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is a big deal. So, so the consequences are devastating. And um, we need to know the truth about it and, um, and really accept the truth of it. And so... Now, I didn't really answer the question, where does, where does this idea come from? I, I mean, I, I told you about Dr. Money, but, um, but the reality is uh, it doesn't really come from him. And uh, when you think about these two ideas, you think about the idea that there's two genders and then the idea that there are many genders. One of those ideas leads to clarity. The other one leads to confusion. One of those ideas leads to care for children. The other idea leads to abuse of children. One idea leads to life 
the other idea leads to death. You see, I would submit to us, church, that the idea doesn't come from Dr. Money at all. I think it comes from someone a little more powerful. Someone who hates the truth and loves, loves falsehood. I, I would submit to you that, that, that it comes from someone who hates life and loves death. I, I, would, I would submit to you today that it comes from somebody who lies and cheats and steals. I would submit to you, church, that it comes from Satan. And I think what we are experiencing here uh, throughout this nation and throughout the world is really a satanic agenda. And Jesus described Satan in John 8, 44 as this. He's a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because the truth, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what I would submit to you is the source of this idea that there are, there, there are many genders. Now, I, I want to tell you that God has, God has left us with, um, with hope and uh, with wisdom in his word. He's, he's really gifted us with two very important institutions. And I'm going to close with this. He's left us with two institutions, the family and the church. And, um, you know, as parents, I think it's imperative for us, especially parents of young children, that we need to be discipling our children in God's word, that we need to be pouring into them now more than ever the truth of God's word so that they, they grow and they see that, that God is with them, that God loves them, that God created them, that God designed them uh, from top to bottom. And God loves them. For, for who that they really are. And, uh, and so family is a powerful uh, institution that God has ordained for the raising and the care and the loving uh, of children. And let me just kind of say this. You know, for our students in the room, maybe you're listening online, maybe you're in the room, you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, whatever, and you're struggling in this area of gender dysphoria. You're struggling with it. I just want to tell you that you are loved here. I just want to tell you that this is a safe place here. And, and see, this is what God has given to us to kind of help, to help guide and navigate the waters of culture. He's given the family, but he's also given the church. And so this is an area where you're struggling just personally. Know that here you'll never be condemned. You'll never be judged. The gospel never calls for that for any occasion, period. And so I just want you to know that um, we will love you, we will walk with you, we will condemn you as you kind of, we won't condemn you as you walk through this. And so I would say this, as a church, as we look to the short term and the long term, we need to understand that we have to be prepared for people coming through our doors that have kind of bought into this and have been broken by it. And we need to show care and compassion and love and patience to those who are trying to figure this out and, and kind of navigate who, who they are uh, in Christ. And so we wanna be that kind of church. Does that make sense, church? You guys track it with me on that? And we wanna be that kind of place where we offer truth and grace. We offer love and compassion at the same time as we, as we fulfill God's word and what he's called us to be and to do. See, the, the, really the truth of, matter, of the matter is this. 
sin is so pervasive, you know, that it's, it's affected me, it's affected you, it's affected all of us. And every single one of us, we've stood, we've stood in front of the mirror and we bought into satanic lies, right? We've entertained thoughts and desires and feelings and questions that really don't line up with who Jesus is. But see, the good news of the gospel is that we're, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And not just merely forgiven, but, but that we could be free. That we could know the truth and walk in freedom. And, and, and not, not, not just did he die, but Jesus also rose on the third day to give us new life. To give us abundant life. Life that brings joy. Life that reflects the joy of the kingdom. And so that's what God offers us. And that's what we want to offer to a hurting and broken world. And so uh, that's the truth about gender. Let, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at your grace. We stand amazed at your mercy. And we are thankful for the truth that sets us free. And I pray, Lord, for our congregation. I, I, I pray for our, our children, our students that may be struggling in this area. Maybe, maybe adults struggling in this area. And so, God, thank you that you've called us to be people of grace and compassion, people of truth, people, and people that reflect your word. And so, God, I pray that um, we would be that community, that that would, that would characterize us. Not that we have it all together, because, God, we don't. We're, we're all beggars looking for that bread. Thank you that you're the bread. You're the bread of life. And so we feast on your truth. And we know the freedom that comes from your truth. So God, just, uh, just move in our hearts and uh, let us be ambassadors for you. Let us reflect who you created us to be. Not for our glory, but for yours. And we thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.